0: Good morning again. If you have a Bible with you, you can open again to the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And while you're turning there, I wanted to take just a very brief moment. I don't know if you've ever had one of these instances in your life, but I deal with this almost weekly, where you have a conversation, or you say things, and then you wonder for the next two, three, four days, did I say that the way that I should have, or could have, or the best way, or not? And last Sunday, I probably went on a bit of a tangent about a few things that I'm somewhat passionate about. And in that, one of the things that we talked about was topical preaching or exegesis in our preaching and verse-by-verse preaching. And I just wanted to say that I think when I was talking about that, I may have condemned a topical sermon, and I should not have done that. We believe in verse by verse preaching. We believe in exegesis. We believe in those things. But there is a time and a place for topical sermons. We use them here even sometimes. There are some very faithful men who are doing it that way and they're doing it and staying true to Scripture. And whether you took it that way or not, I don't know. But I wanted to make sure that what I said was clear and that I wasn't somehow condemning someone that is doing it right. The only other thing I would say about that is I do think that the opportunity to stray from the truth of scripture is stronger when you preach only that way than through the text. And that's one of the reasons that I believe we should preach through the text so that we stay with the text and we don't get off. Okay? So this week we're going to continue our sermon series. We've entitled Order in the Church as we see the Apostle Paul speaking to Titus, this young pastor that he is instructing on how to help these churches that he's been kind of put over for this time and he's told them that he wants them to have order and his first order of business in that was to place elders in the church and i'll tell you that this week i'm thankful that the entire sermon is not about who an elder is supposed to be what an elder is supposed to do how he's supposed to be i'm glad that there's a little bit of stuff on you this week it's not just about you looking at me judging me all week long so i'm thankful for that Before we read the text, I want to take you way back to chapter 1, verse 9. He's talking about the qualifications of an elder. He's talking about what an elder is supposed to do, or a pastor. And he says this, Holding fast the faithful word, as he has been taught, that he may be able to, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And so way back in that sermon a month or so ago, we talked about the idea of exhorting believers toward Christ, toward righteous living, toward holiness, toward doing the things that they're supposed to, and then convicting those who are outside of that, convicting those who would contradict the word of God. And last week we saw Paul tell Titus to tell the elders, if you will, to convict. He told them to contradict. He told them to sharply rebuke those who would teach false doctrine. And today... We move from the convict to the exhort. Today, he talks about exhortation in the church. Today, he talks about what church families should be encouraged to be doing, what moms and dads and grandmothers and grandfathers, what older people in the church and younger people in the church should be doing, the way that we should be living and the way that we should be growing together as a church. And so we begin to see this idea of exhortation. This is who we should be. This is what we should be doing. This is the goal or the direction that we should be going. And so in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll read again through verse 10. God's perfect and inspired word says this. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience, The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence and incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And so he begins in verse 2 with a contradiction. If you remember, last week... In the text, he spent a lot of time talking about who these false teachers are and what the false teachers are teaching. He talks about that they are lying, that they are falling into fables, that they are, have man-made commandments and these sort of things. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, he tells Titus, but as for you, in other words, you be different than what these men are. You teach something different. You live differently than these men are living. You show yourself to be set apart as a person of God, as a follower of Jesus, as a representative of him, as a pastor or as an elder. And so he first charges Titus with speaking sound doctrine. He says in verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. In other words, he says... Watch your mouth and make sure that you are saying the things that align with the doctrine that you have already heard from Paul, that you have heard from the eyewitnesses of Jesus, that you are receiving from the Spirit. Make sure that you are teaching only sound doctrine and that you yourself don't get pulled away with these otherworldly ideologies, with these fables, with these man-made doctrines. You preach what is true. You preach what is biblical. You preach what has been taught to you and do not stray from that. So it matters first for Titus what he says, but this is going to be a theme throughout the whole day. So hear this now. It matters what Titus says, but it doesn't matter what Titus says if Titus doesn't live what he says. And we've all experienced that in some way, shape, or form in our lives. Now, does that mean, again, that a pastor or an elder is always perfect, never makes a mistake, never lets anyone down, never hurts anyone, never sins? No, that's not the case. Now, should he want to do those things? No. Should he try to avoid those things? Absolutely. But in general, what Paul is teaching for Titus the elder, for the men and for the women within the church, all the way through these 10 verses, what he is saying is the words that you say must be backed up by the actions that you live look what it says down in verse 7 in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine showing integrity reverence and incorruptibility Showing integrity, that word integrity means that you are the same person in front of people at church as you are at home, that your words match up your life, that when you go to work you're the same person as you are when you talk to your children, that your life is across the board same, and hopefully it's that way in towards holiness and towards righteousness. And so he says that you need to say these words, you need to preach these doctrines, you need to teach these things, and in a moment we're going to talk about what he tells Titus to preach. But he says, I want you to say these words and to preach these things, but you must be an example. You must live your life according to those same doctrines. You must have a life of integrity, of reverence, of incorruptibility. You must live a life that with sound speech that cannot be condemned, as it says in verse eight, when opponents may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. You must live a life that not just preaches these things, but lives and walks those things out. And so the first commandment is for Titus as the leader. He says, I want you in contrary to the false teachers, in contrary to those who may be believing in Zeus and in God, in contrary to those who may be making up their own fables, in contradiction to them, you preach sound doctrine. In contradiction to them, you live your life according to the words that you say. We all agree with that. And we also all know that many times that's more difficult to do than it is to say. But that's what I, an elder, is first called to do, to live out the words that he says. So he says, as for you, teach the things that are for sound doctrine. But if you notice, there is a colon after sound doctrine. In other words, he is saying, teach sound doctrine. This is what you're supposed to teach this is what you're supposed to tell them, right? So this doctrine that he's talking about, these teachings are not just some mythical things that he's supposed to find out. No, he says, teach these things. Tell them to do these things. Tell them to be this way. Tell them to act in this certain way. And the first thing that he tells them to do is to teach the older men. He tells them to teach men, first the older men and then the younger men. Look with me in verse two. That the older men may be sober, reverent temperate sound in faith in love in patience so the first thing that he does is he addresses the older men in the church now i was thinking about this i probably don't need to say it now i probably should wait till we get to women but i'm just going to say it now so equal opportunity for everyone here today i'm not going to define who's old okay you can decide in your own life if you're an older man or an older woman or a younger man or a younger woman so you can define who you are I'm not going to do that for you. But the first thing that he says in verse two, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and in patience. Those who are older in age must first be sober. That word doesn't just mean sober as in not drinking alcohol, but rather that word means temperate or even keeled or able to give advice. Someone who isn't rattled by the things of the world, right? Someone who's been through things and has the ability to speak wisdom into someone's life and to not be, again, affected by the things around them. He tells them to be reverent or grave or honest. He tells them to be sound in the faith, sound in faith. Listen, we're going to speak very bluntly this morning. There's an expectation that if you are an older man, that you are older in your faith. Does that make sense? That you have not just matured physically, but that you have matured spiritually. That there is a spiritual maturity about you. That there is an understanding about the Word. That there is an understanding about who Jesus is and who He proclaims to be and what salvation is. There is an expectation, men, that you not just grow old, but you grow up in your faith. There are too many men who come into church every Sunday and they just want to float through and they get older day by day, but their spiritual life stays immature. There are too many older men in the church that are still drinking milk that ought to be eating meat. And some of you say, well, listen, I'm already an old man. It's too late for me. Guess what? This church is comprised of people who mainly did not grow up in church. These are brand new churches that need brand new pastors. These, for the most part, are brand new people who are believers in Jesus Christ. And he says, you take the physical maturity that you have and apply it to your spiritual life and grow up. That's what he's saying. So that you can teach, so that you can guide, so that you can direct, so that you can help other people. And this is how he tells them how to help those other people. Look what it says, in love and in patience. In love and in patience. He says, if you are an older man, you should be exhibiting love and patience to those who are around you, especially to those who are younger men. Now, why would he say that? Because we have a tendency to be grumpy old men, don't we? We do. We have a tendency to be grumpy old men. We have a tendency to look at the next generation below us. Some of you can look at a couple of generations below you at this moment, and you can look at them and say, well, what's wrong with these kids today? What are they doing? What's going on? Why can't they get this figured out? Why can't they do this, right? So he says to act with love, but to act with patience. Listen, if you're not willing to love and be patient with the next generation of men, then you don't have a right to complain about the next generation of men. If you don't have a desire to invest in their lives and to teach and to guide and direct them, you don't get to complain about them. And so what he says is that the older men should be sober and reverent, sound in their faith, love and impatient. He says in verse six, look what he says for the young men. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. And I wanna remind you now, because in a minute we're gonna talk about women and the list is longer for women. And I don't know why. I didn't write it, okay? First off, I'm just reading it. Probably the reason is because he isn't trying to give an exhaustive list of everything a Christian is supposed to do but rather he's addressing certain situations in this church and this culture that need to be addressed, and these are the ones that he sees. But young men, he says, to be sober-minded. That word means to be moderate, again, even-keeled, temperate. Why is that? Because younger men are not. We're not. When I was a younger man, I was not as sober-minded as I am today. 20 years ago, I did not have the same patience. I did not have the same moderation. Now, listen, that moderation could be being not drunk, but that sober minded could be not being drunk with wine, not being drunk with pride, not being drunk with ambition, not being drunk with knowledge. Men, how many of you, when you were 20 years old, thought you knew everything that you needed to know about anything in this life? I knew everything. I needed to know guidance, I needed to know advice, I knew everything I needed to know. You know what I was when I was 20? Stupid. That's what I was. I didn't know anything. And so that's what he's telling them, that there needs to be a humbleness about the younger men. Why? Here's how this goes together, and then we'll move on. I can't stand up here and say, older men, you need to be patient and loving with younger men, guiding them, directing them, teaching them, if we don't have a group of younger men who are humble enough to listen. And we don't have a group of younger men who will look up to them and say, you know what? I really don't know everything. You have more life experience. You've spent more time in the word. You've walked through these things in life that I've yet to experience. And so therefore, I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to gain that advice. I'm willing to do that. So those things go hand in hand. Younger men, if you're too proud to listen to the older men, when you fall flat on your face, you just fall on your face, right? We can't help you. And so what he's saying is that they should be humble enough to listen. There is in this church, these churches, there is in this church, there is in the church a great need. I wrote in my notes, need in all caps, godly growing men. The kingdom needs you to be growing. The kingdom needs you to be guiding. It needs you to be directing. It needs you to be loving and caring for those around you. It's needed. So then he moves on to women. Look in verses 3 through 5. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And so again, first he addresses the older women in the church in verse 3. And he says, likewise, or in the same way that these men are supposed to be this, you are to do this. But then he gives them a few specific things in verse 3, that they not be slanderers, that they not be gossips, that they not be speaking down about other people, that they not be getting on their little groups and complaining about others and tearing people down. Rather, they be encouraging people and lifting those people up. That they not be drunk. Listen, this sober really means sober. Lay off the wine, okay? Okay. I don't know, it's a resurgence of a thing today, right? When I was a kid, I didn't know anybody who drank wine. Now everybody says, oh, I gotta have a glass of wine. Listen, I'm not condemning having a glass of wine. If you wanna drink a glass of wine, you drink a glass of wine, that's between you and God. I don't think the Bible condemns it. I also don't think it encourages it. But here's what I'll say about this. If you get to the end of the day and you say these words, I need a glass of wine. You don't need a glass of wine, you need Jesus. That's where it's at, okay? And so he says, be sober, and I think those things go hand in hand. I think what you'll find is if you find yourself struggling with not being sober, you'll probably find yourself struggling with slandering people as well. You have a much greater control over your tongue when you have control over the alcohol that you put in your mouth. But here's a couple of things here that I want to kind of talk about for a moment, lest I be accused of not being fair. Look what it says again. It says in verse 3, the older women, that they be reverent in behavior, not Slander is not given to much wine listen to this teachers of good things teachers of good things we've already talked about who's supposed to be a pastor who is qualified to be a pastor it says in chapter 1 verse 6 if a man is blameless it says in timothy that not allow a woman to have authority over a man listen i'm as complimentarian as the day is long on the day that you fall back right like i'm that much complimentarian But here's what I will say, and I will say it as loud as humanly possible. God has absolutely, positively gifted women to teach. And there is absolutely, positively places where he has ordained them to teach. And we should celebrate that because it is needed and vital for the life of the church. And Paul tells Titus, you make sure those women teach. You make sure they share what they know. You make sure that they proclaim the truths that they have been taught. Now listen, I don't believe it's in the role of a pastor or an elder, but it is certainly a biblical fact that God has gifted women to teach, that he has given them a place to use it. And he tells them, look what he says. Verse 3 says that they be teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. Listen, there's all sorts of words today that are used and thrown around and and all this stuff. Are you ready to hear something? Everybody says that everybody wants to be progressive today. You ready for this? This is the most progressive thing you're going to hear. This is women caring about women. This is really women caring about women. This isn't women standing outside of an abortion clinic wanting other women to kill their children. This is really women for women. This is a woman saying, I love you and I care for you and I know how hard it is to be married to a man and I know how hard it is to raise children and to live your life for Jesus and I know how hard it is to struggle through financial things and to walk through these things and I know how hard it is to deal with this and I love you and I care for you and I want you to hear these truths. That is women for women. That is progressiveness. That is what the Bible says. And so what we see is the Bible absolutely ordains women to teach other women. And we should celebrate that and we should encourage that. And I'll say the same thing, maybe a little bit kinder to those of you who would consider yourselves to be older women. Invest in the younger women. Reach out to those who have young children. Reach out to those who are starting lives. Reach out to those who are going through what you went through 30, 40, 50 years ago. Share truth with them. Be involved with what they're doing. Listen to them. Talk with them. They need guidance and encouragement. This is a biblical thing for you to do. This doesn't mean that you have to be the leader of women's Bible study or Sunday school or whatever. But this means that you need to find someone to invest in and disciple. You need to find someone to care about. Someone to teach. So it says to teach the younger women. And then it tells us what they want the older women to teach the younger women. It says in verse 4 that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So it says that they're supposed to teach the younger women to love their husbands. I'm going to stop just for a moment here because I think there are times when you're studying that you come across something and you're like, this is unique. And so when Paul uses this word to Titus, love your husbands, He uses a Greek word, which is philandros for love, which is the only time in the whole New Testament that that word is used. And so what does it mean? What is Titus or what are these older women supposed to teach the younger women how to love their husbands? What does that mean, right? So there's two words that kind of define this. One of them, I think most of you will be okay with. The other one, maybe not as much depending on how long you've been married. The first one is to be fond of them. And most of you are like, yeah, I can be fond of him. We can coexist. We can do the things together. I can be fond of him and show my fondness for him. We can go through life. And so most people are like, yeah, I can teach him to do that. But here's the other one, affectionate. Now, here's what I want you to understand about affection. This word has nothing to do with sexual things, okay? There's a Greek word for that. He didn't use that word, okay? So what does it mean to be affectionate? Well, that probably is different for each person and each couple and each family. I'll give you a short example of this, okay? Because sometimes I think when we hear these words, we think, oh, my gosh, you know, do I got to do this? What does he want? You know, what is he expecting? So she probably doesn't even remember this. It's been two or three months ago. And I don't know how this happened. This almost never happens because of just the way our lives work and run. But we went to Walmart together with no children. I don't know why. I don't know why we were going to Walmart. She usually does the little pickup thing. And I try to go there only if in dire need. Right, but we're going to Walmart. We get out of the truck and Jeep had driven and so she parked like in Arby's parking lot because she always parks as far away from the store as humanly possible. And so we're walking up there. And, you know, normally when we're walking, there's three kids and we've got carts and they're running around and you know, all of this stuff is happening. So we're just kind of living our lives, right? And so we're walking up to Walmart, and as we're walking, she reaches over and she puts her hand underneath my arm and walks like we're the homecoming candidates. And let me tell you something. My chest went out. I'd have walked through that whole store with her on my arm. I'd have walked through the toilet aisle. I'd have walked through every aisle in that Walmart with her on my arm. There was something about it that made my whole day. It lasted 10 steps. It made my whole day. Listen, it doesn't always have to be something huge. But let me tell you something. Your husbands need it. And sometimes it doesn't take all that much to give it to them. So teach them to love them. Teach them to be fond of them and affectionate to them. Some of you heard in verse 5 when it says, obedient to their own husbands and some of you cringed whenever you heard that word obedient listen that word obedient is the same word that is used for our obedience to god in other words because we have received love we respond this is a response obedient because we have been loved and cared for and given grace and mercy we then respond to him with obedience because we want to follow him because we know that he is good because we know that he is holy because we know that he is god and it's the same idea here that the wife would not be living under some sort of slavery submission but that she would willfully desire to submit to her husband because he is loving her like jesus loved the church He also, in verse 4, to love their children. What does it mean to love your children? Well, he explains how to love their children in verse 5. To be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. The word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, does that mean that a woman cannot have a job? No, that's not what that means. Proverbs 31 clearly speaks against that. But what it means is if you're going to love your children and you're going to love your husband, you will keep their home. You will have your first responsibility be caring for the home, that you will make it a safe Clean, modest, that you will care for your children in your home, that you will make it a place of safety and security, that you will make it a place where they feel loved and cared for and have their needs met. That your first responsibility will be there. And here's why this matters. I know this matters because I've seen this I've seen this exact pattern over and over and over and over again. This is why it's so important that women teach the younger ones. Because when we have order in our home, there is order in our church when we have order in our home we have order in our church that's why our greatest responsibility begins at home and then comes here when there is dysfunction in the home there will be dysfunction now that doesn't mean that when you have problems or struggles in the home that you avoid the church no we come here to help one another and to walk through those things with one another so this commandment this exhortation for men and women to disciple men and women is vital to the order of the church it's the way it's supposed to work So the last thing is this we're not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning but the last thing is this in verses 9 and 10 it says to exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters to be well pleasing in all things not answering back not pilfering but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of god our savior in all things now The Bible here is speaking of bondservants, those who are servants of other people. These may be willing bondservants who have entered into this, or they may be not so willing. Paul is not encouraging slavery, but the reality is, is that a lot of people in the first church, a lot of people were in some form of bondservant at that time. The way people paid and borrowed and things were just different than the way that they are today, especially in our culture. And so this is not a minority of people. This is probably a majority of people. And so when he's talking to people who live their lives with a responsibility to someone else, that's the idea. You have a responsibility to live and to work for underneath the responsibility of another person. Well, that's basically all of us, right? Unless you're one of the older people who are retired, and then it's just your wife that you have that responsibility to, right? But he says to be obedient, to do what you're told. When you go to work, you should do what you're told. To be well-pleasing, you should seek to please that person that you're working for. Not answering back, that just means to not backtalk, to not snap back or argue. Not pilfering, that's stealing. Don't steal stuff from the place you work for. Don't steal anything. Don't take ink pens home. Don't steal paper. Don't steal time. Don't steal from the person that you're working for. Showing good fidelity and honesty that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. In other words, you live your life in this way that they may see the teaching of God, that they may see the person of Jesus. So we're gonna end with this one thing. Look back with me in verse five. He describes what the younger women are supposed to be learning. And then he says this, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. I pray that we would be a church who seek to live our lives in our homes first and then in our church in a way that the word of God would not be blasphemed. Listen, I'm fully aware that there are many people who would hear this sermon. There may be people here today who would hear this sermon and say that this is hogwash. And this is not who people are today. Times have changed and this is not the way it is. And if they have that opinion, that is perfectly fine. They can have that opinion. My job is not to please the culture. My job is to preach the word of God. And friends, this morning, we must be people who seek to honor this word, who seek to live this way in the middle of the culture. The Christian has always been and always will be countercultural. Always. There's no way around it to be a true follower of Jesus and not stand out from the culture around you. So I pray that we would honor the word of God and we would seek to love one another enough to care for one another, to teach and to guide and direct one another. And we would seek to have a strong responsibility in our homes first and then to our church. And we would have our homes in order so that our church can be in order as well.